I see it time and again as um, as people come to the clinic from all over the world, and they are in tears with me because in America they are accepted, and they their children. It doesn't matter that they look very different than the rest of us. They are loved, and there are sidewalks that allow them to take their wheelchairs anywhere they want to get. They can access the world. And that's not the case in a lot of places. And so how can we teach these cultures how to love these people for who they are? And how can we teach them to bestow dignity on them, even though they look different um, than we do? So First um, Corinthians talks about, you know, I can give everything that I have, but if I don't have love, then it's meaningless. And... And don't forget that what we do for the least of these, as Matthew, as Jesus says in Matthew, we've done unto him. Um, so let that frame the context of my talk. Um, so the first thing I want to talk about is safety. And this is so, a lot of these things are education-based to not only the care providers in hospitals or communities, but also in the homes, because that's where the bulk of things are going on. I have heard, um, since last year, I have been in contact with so many people all over the world, which has been such a blessing to me. And I've learned so much about what people are struggling with and the needs that they have and the resources that they have. Um, And one of the big things I'm hearing is that um, fire safety is a big deal. You know, most places have open pits um, to cook with, and so they have fires going all day long. Kids are curious. So you have an 18-month-old that has spina bifida. So essentially this child may not be able to feel from his waist down, but he's very mobile, so he's crawling all over. What 18-month-old does not want to go explore the fire? The child is then burned, and most children with spina bifida actually... I don't know that most, but I heard an astounding statistic that I don't remember now. Perhaps 30% of them or something astounding in third world countries die from fire burns. Um, So this is not only just their typical children that are going to have, you know, need fire safety, but especially for these children that are impaired, um, especially then when you have sensation changes like in spina bifida. Cleanliness is also um, an issue because it's, they may be hot. It may be um, that they, it's harder to care for them. And so um, bathing is perhaps not as normal as it is, is here in the States. So most of them are probably sponge bathed. Um, but then depending on the size, this applies more to the adults too, depending on the size of the person and how they are cared for. It's very important that we're drying our patients. That may sound crazy. But um, when not appropriately dried in hard-to-reach crevices and things, then we can get infections and bacterial buildup and things that can be really detrimental to the health of these people, aside from the, um, or this is on top of this disease that they already have that's caused their reason for that they're non-ambulatory. Relating to also skin checks, and it's important that we are monitoring, you know, if they're laying in one position for too long, if they are... um, If they've gotten a bug bite that gets infected, they may not know, and it's important that we are really monitoring their whole body to make sure that something is not getting blown out of proportion before we realize it. So if we catch early a wound or a bite or a small infection, it's a lot easier to deal with 
than when it's really full-blown. And that could cause, that could be quite a complication in these situations that you may find yourself in overseas if they're not managed early. So the first thing we're going to do is bed positioning. Um, actually, you know what? That kind of doesn't fit my slides. Let's go to the aspiration risk first. So um, people with decreased muscle control, which frequently will be these people who are end up being or who are non-ambulatory, they don't walk, they're confined to their bed or their wheelchairs. Um, they may have a deep have difficulty swallowing. When you have difficulty swallowing, then you can aspirate or get some of the liquid or the food or whatever you're eating into the airway, which can then cause pneumonia, significant complications from that point. So some of the signs of this, in the, in the states, obviously, we would do a swallow study to evaluate, are they protecting their airway when they're swallowing? Um, the, obviously, that's not available in resource-limited areas. So some of the signs that you may recognize would be, as they're drinking liquids, are they coughing and sputtering? Do they, does their voice sound gurgly and wet and rattly? Um, do they have a lot of upper respiratory illness that would indicate, you know, maybe they are aspirating some? Some people are what we call silent aspirators, and you don't hear much of the coughing, the sputtering when they're eating, but they still may be aspirating. So what I have also found is from, you know, Mayo gets a lot of, um, I have seen so many children that come over from refugee camps um, that are showing up at our doorstep and have never had care before, but they're very impaired children. And so it's very interesting for me to see a seven-year-old who has not had the care that they typically would in, the, in America, what does it look like then to have no care? And I, what I find is a lot of moms, they're worried about calories, right? Because these kids don't gain a lot of weight because it's hard to eat. And so the moms learn to tip their head back and just pour whatever it is down their throat. If you do that, you essentially... Um, it's just like plugging it right into your lungs because you kind of open up. It's harder to get your epiglottis to then cover your airway. And I actually see a lot of kids who end up with a contracture of the neck and can't even bring their necks forward anymore. So they're stuck in this position. They're eating in this position, and they are just respiratory messes. Um, so... I think it's so important to teach your moms how to handle their child when they're feeding them. The best position to feed someone in is a neutral head position. It seems silly, but try swallowing in different positions. You know, it's very hard to swallow back here. Um, it's also very hard to swallow down here. So that, that head position is key. If someone is really prone to aspiration, if you do a small chin tuck, it actually facilitates the coverage of the airway. And so, so a little chin tuck is actually a good thing. Too much is a bad thing. So that, so education is key. They don't have seating systems. You know, we make a seating system and a supportive chair for these children to sit in that puts them in this perfect position and we say, feed your child here. They don't have that. So, to, I would say that the best place to feed a child is probably in your arms, um, is the safest, because they about a 45-degree tilt 
let's say, is good. Um, being upright too much is going to be they don't have the, the muscle control of their trunk or their head to support themselves. So kind of tipping them back in that 45-degree position um, so that you can then support them appropriately but so that they can also safely be eating. Um, there, if a child is aspirating on, let's say, water or formula in the States, we will often get something called, like, thicken it up or you, some kind of thickener to um, mix in with the, the liquids that they are eating because that makes it easier to swallow it. It's less risky for them to swallow it. So I was talking to some of my occupational therapy friends about what can we do. I mean, it's not like getting that... Um, overseas is very easy, but they all have some kind of flour or some kind of, even if you ground up rice um, and kind of mixed that in with a water, milk, whatever they are eating, or make it baby food. So that would be considered nectar thick or taking it to a baby food consistency, kind of like a pureed food, is much safer than a thin liquid like water or milk. Does that make sense? So so if they're struggling with that kind of thing, you may suggest that to families to decrease the risk of upper respiratory infections, pneumonia, that kind of road that we would be headed down. Um, questions about that? Feel free to interrupt me at any time um, if something pops in your head. Otherwise, we'll leave questions at the end, too. Time for questions at the end. Bed positioning. This is so important, but it is so labor-intensive. And it is weary to do day after day after day. Um, so every, in an ideal world, every four hours, every two to six hours, somebody should be changed positions. We do this all the time. Even as you all are sitting here, you're moving positions. And consider if you were not able to move at all, you are stuck in one position it's uncomfortable. What happens is, you know, it becomes uncomfortable because all of our bony prominences compress then on our tissues and essentially they get less blood supply and um, they, left long enough, can become, it can become necrotic tissue. So obviously that's worst case scenario, but we see it happen a lot. And so it is essential that we continue moving these people that are unable to move on their own and perhaps can't even communicate with us, I'm uncomfortable. Um, so, you know, that can be on their stomach, on their side, on their back. I'm going to go over every position with you, specifically kind of what you're looking for in a minute. Um, an easy way to do this, especially, and this is where I think it applies, you know, a three-year-old is pretty easy to move positions. And three-year-olds you expect to do more care for. And so for some reason it's easier to care for a three-year-old dependent child than it is a 17-year-old who is now fully adult-sized. They're starting to get the complications of living a life of very, a very debilitated state perhaps. Um, and it's just harder to continue loving them, to continue caring for them. So if you strategically place sheets underneath someone, it's easy to pull that sheet and make small adjustments compared to trying to move the person. 
because consider also, if we move a person, think about if you take all of your weight and somebody just tugs you across somebody, you can imagine you almost get like an Indian burn type of sensation, right? So that's what we're doing to these people if we don't move them properly. So um, sheets to help roll are great. If you have access to plastic garbage bags or stick a bunch of them in your suitcase when you go overseas because if you put a plastic garbage bag underneath a, sh a bed sheet, it, they will slip and slide every direction you want to go and you can move the largest person by yourself largely just because of the decreased friction that that plastic bag will create. Um, Sometimes we'll use these in wheelchairs also to help position because as you sit in a chair, you kind of start to slump forward, right? Kind of get into that sacral sitting position. So if you have a garbage bag under there, it's easy to just whoop, pull them right up and they're sitting right on their ischial tuberosities again. But you also have to be careful because if they're a person prone to that sacral sitting, that trash bag's going to make them do it quicker. So um, it's also pretty easy to slide these trash bags in and out um, between transfers. So you can kind of roll them up under the patient, stuff them under with your fingers, and then get it back in and out. So we can talk about that more, too, if you're interested. But, um, but if they're lying down, then you can easily leave it under them and not take it in and out. Um, so let's go to um, a prone position. So that would be lying on your belly. And all of this, I want you to just, with the head position with swallowing, as you digest so much information from this conference, and then, you know, you're three years out and you think, oh, I know that I learned how to do this. All of this is intuitive. So lie on your stomach and feel where you feel the pressure points. Because if you lie in any of these positions, you can feel, oh yeah, if I laid here long enough, my hips are digging into, those bones right here are digging into the surface. Lie on something hard so you can feel it. Um, digging into the surface. You know, sometimes people's shoulders are digging into the surface. Um, definitely your head. You can feel how it kind of puts your back at an arched position if you're just lying flat on a surface. So, so everything that I'm doing to position is to counter those things. Your back is in a more comfortable position if you put a small pillow right underneath your stomach pelvis area just to kind of put your back in a better position, prevent prolonged back pain. Um, and to also get the pressure off of your ASISs, those front bones in your hips. Then um, your head position. So you like this. This is optimal right here. Most of us don't have access to these complex pillows. Um, but I thought I'd give you optimal. The next one is less than optimal. So, yeah, that's right. You can create something. Um, so if you, you obviously you can do it like this. Most people are going to turn their head from side to side. Just make sure you keep rotating the head because lying for a long time with your head in that much rotation can be uncomfortable and depends. You've got to be careful too, depending on your patient. Some of them may not be able to get in prone position at all because their hips are contracted or... Um, or it's just uncomfortable. Um, and um, although I will say I have seen I have seen two kids now come over from um, one was from Africa, one was from the Middle East that had large myelomeningocele that were uncorrected over there, and one was a three-year-old that probably had the size of a basketball on his back. His 
um, his spinal cord was sticking out of his back, and so he was brought over to Mayo to do a surgery. So he had never done anything but be on his stomach because he had this huge basketball on his back, which is great for his cervical extension strengthening, right? We say put babies on their bellies so they get extensor strengthening. He was strong there, but um, um, so some so you may see some kids like that who have actually had alternate positioning um, that need you're going to have to think creatively about how to position them. The other thing when you're on your tummy is to get your feet up. So again, it's, it's so much more, it's more pressure on your knees actually and less comfortable for your feet. And it puts your feet in a pointed position if you don't put something under them. If you prop them up just a little bit, it puts them in a more neutral position. Potentially, arguably not super important for some of these non-ambulatory people. If they're non-ambulatory, they're not going to be standing presumably, and they're not going to be in an environment where that's necessarily possible. Um, but it will keep them more comfortable if we can keep their feet in a better position. Supine, lying on your back. Um, I told you I'd give you a less than optimal. This is actually quite high-tech, um, not high-tech, extremely expensive equipment in the States. She's probably laying... Um, on probably at least a thousand dollars worth of pillows right there, um, but which you're obviously not going to have access to. Um, but you can see that this um, child is probably contracted, and so they've kind of made modifications to figure out how to position them best. When you're lying on your back, it's best to get um, some kind of towel roll or sheet. You can be creative. This can be anything that's slightly round. Um, you know, you could put sheets around coffee cans or pieces of wood or anything to kind of get their knees up um, to, we call it a hook-lying position. So you're kind of laying like this if I was in a supine position at my knees. And your knees can be more or less bent. Um, and, but that's going to, again, take the pressure off of your back and put your back and your pelvis in a better position as you're lying there. Um, arm support, you know, some people like to have their arms supported by pillows. Some people, variation is the key. We like to move. These people like to move, too. Ask them, how are they comfortable? Where else can I put pillows to alter your positioning to make you more comfortable? Keep in mind, all of this is going to be changed by contractures or the, the kind of the shape of the patient. You and I are, you know, we bend and move in almost every direction, getting less as we get older, right? But, um, but these people are not going to because their muscles function differently. Slide lying probably requires the most support, but it's a lot of times the most comfortable for people. So the big ones you want to avoid when you're on your side are your greater trochanter right here at your hips. So you don't want somebody lying exactly on their side because this is going to dig in and hurt. So you want them lying either just off to their stomach, kind of like this little boy is, or just off to their back, actually, and kind of put a pillow behind their back to kind of keep them in that position. A pillow between the legs, everybody hears that, right? Um, but it's true because then you keep the hips in a better position and their knees don't compress um, to create sores at their knees. Um, and then, you know, if you turn them to the back, then you'll put a pillow behind the back. If you turn them more to the front here, you can see that he's kind of hugging a pillow in the front to keep him there. So either way. Um, does anybody have questions about positioning? Do those... Again, do it. You'll feel as you lie in those positions, what 
what doesn't feel comfortable if I lay here for a while, and where would it feel good to have the most support? Um, Comfort is huge. This is, I don't think that any of us know how painful it is to just lie in one place all day long um, and the isolation that that can bring. And so um, so I think that these people are oftentimes too at a very, they're needy. And um, isn't it true that if we think we aren't needy, then I don't see my need for a savior either. These people are very needy and they need a savior, and they know that. And so I think that most of all, um, although we are meeting their physical needs, I think that they are very spiritually needy and receptive too. Um, so part of um, making them comfortable is stretching. If we can teach families how to stretch them to keep their muscles more mobile, so that they don't get so tense and sore, preventing contractures. Um, You can use resting splints. We talked about this a little bit last year, too. How can you make a resting splint? Be creative. Use cardboard. Use Coban. Use wraps. Use whatever. If it would make them more comfortable. If it's just more labor for the families, perhaps it's not worth it. Does it matter if a child's hands are crippled up a bit if they aren't able to use them or not? In America, we seem to think You know, we're all about image, and so we want to keep our children's hands like this, even if they don't use them much. Um, So I think that's something that you can kind of toy with as you're overseas. How important is it um, to maintain joint alignment? If it makes them more comfortable, that's when I think it would be a great thing. If it's just for image and if it's just another work, another piece of labor that the family has to do, perhaps it's not as important. Serial casting. I have had a conversation with a man over in China who is working to develop a clinic. Um, and he, there are some places, there are quite a few places overseas that are doing some serial casting. So I thought I'd touch on it just a little bit. Um, again, if it's, if it's purely um, an image thing or a, you know, so that their joints look normal, it is not worth the effort. If there is intention in it, then absolutely. Or if there's pain involved, then perhaps it's worth it. So um, if you're going to do serial casting, you first wrap in cotton. And you want to put at least four layers of cotton on um, over just soft areas. So like if I'm doing the foot, then I want to make sure there are four, air, four layers of, um, of cotton over like the calf area. But I want to make sure there are at least eight layers over bony prominences because that's where with the cast you're going to get areas of blistering sores that can arise, which would obviously be huge complications. Um, so, so this must also be done safely because it could have huge ramifications in wounds and things like that, which could be very detrimental to a child. Um, so I'd want a little bit, someone who knows a little bit of what they're doing here or gets a little bit more training perhaps before you would just necessarily go and do this wherever. Um, typically in the States we use a fiberglass cast because it's, it's not as heavy, um, it doesn't hold heat quite as much, it's a little bit more comfortable, but it's far more expensive. Plaster Paris is pretty available, it's pretty cheap even overseas, so that seems to be, when this is be- being done elsewhere, they're definitely using plaster casts. Um, 
At Mayo, we've kind of created a great timeline that's working really well for um, the kids that we're doing this with, and we're pretty effective. So typically, you put the first cast on. So here's the other problem overseas is that you may not see this patient back. I mean, you may not see them regular enough to be able to do this. Um, because we would put the first cast on. I would change it three to four days later um, just to make sure that their skin is looking safe. They don't have any angry areas or, heaven forbid, blisters that are forming. Um, and then we put a cast back on and leave it on for one to two weeks at a time and then continue changing that until I see the range of motion changes that I'm looking for. Um, that can be anywhere from three weeks to 12 weeks. So it just really depends on their muscle plasticity and how they respond. Normally, I would say we're doing the um, Achilles tendon and the gastroc soleus muscle um, for making changes in range of motion. But I've also done hamstrings. So this picture um, right here is doing the hamstring muscle and kind of gradually pulling them out into a position of knee extension. That's pretty risky to do, and you can create a lot of back pain. So you've got to be really careful if you're going to do that. But that's the hamstrings can also cause a lot of discomfort. And so that may be an effective way to get some more range of motion. Um, but I don't know that it would be my first line of thought. Um, can be effective, but it's time-intensive, it's labor-intensive, it's hot, itchy, and the risk of wounds, you've got to be careful. But it certainly is a possibility, even overseas. I find that, so sometimes I actually like the atrophy that I get. Let's say I have, uh, oh, this varies from patient to patient. If I have a toe walker, let's say, I love the atrophy that I get in the calf, right, because they're toe walkers, so then if I atrophy that calf, they can't toe walk anymore. Perfect. That's what I want to do. Um, so whereas somebody who's immobile, maybe I'm not as concerned about it because they're going to continue to be immobile, so muscle atrophy is relatively... Um, I'm going more for comfort than not. Um, there certainly is atrophy, and so that is something you need to take into consideration. Um, but I think the end goal is what you're going for. So I do take it on a case-by-case -case basis. There are some kids I would never put in a cast because they would atrophy too much that they may lose their ambulation if they're immobile for six weeks and I put them in a cast. Even if it's a walking cast, sometimes it's just too much immobility that I'm going to lose lose too much in their ambulation. So so, is that how, so kind of a cop-out. It's really case-by-case. Case. And and the goals of your serial casting. I guess the goals of my serial casting primarily overseas would be more comfort. Unless maybe I have a toe walker that, you know, is really, especially if it's a hemiplegic patient that's really um, on their toes on one side, and I can keep them mobile in a cast, but I can improve their walking. I can decrease the pain that they're having from that. Um, positioning then that and get them into a shoe if they're not fitting into shoes anymore because of their foot position. Um, the other thing that um, I will speak a little bit to, but know that this is the physiatrist's ph decision in America, although um, they'll ask my opinion. It is ultimately their decision, so I can't tell you too much other than um, the difference between Botox phenol injection. So if you're going to do serial casting on a child who has increased muscle tone, um, in the States we will often combine that with Botox injections. We choose Botox because it's a lot less painful. But we choose Botox in the States, and it is 
ten times the cost of the phenol injections. So phenol overseas is a better option if you need that. Um, but it's more injections. In the States, typically we do phenol under anesthesia because it's a lot more pokes. It's not as, it doesn't spread quite as much as the um, Botox does. So it's more injections. It's, um, they're more painful. So you just got to take into consideration, again, the goals. If muscle tone is a significant problem, phenol can be a good way to really decrease that and make people more comfortable. Um, but it very much may not be available, certainly. Um, and it, um, the patient just may not tolerate the injections. An advantage of phenol does last a lot longer than Botox, and we are getting pretty good success combining serial casting with Botox or phenol, um, whichever the case may be, you know, and kind of decreasing that muscle tone and then giving them a very prolonged stretch to make gains in their joint contraction. So, again, ask a physician if you have more specific questions on making that decision. I just know the ramifications. Um, so, these patients, I have two babes at home. They are sweet. They are, I love my children. But if they stayed like this forever, my life would look significantly different than it appears to look today, in which my children will grow up, they will gain independence. Hopefully they're not adolescents until 34. My goodness, that was disheartening. Um, in which case, but um, regardless, you can see what I'm saying. You know, I love this baby stage. But I also love that my eight-month-old is growing up. He's mobile now. That makes him far more happy and content. And soon he'll be walking, which is, you know, has its pros and its cons. But ultimately, I'm thrilled about that. So you can only imagine these families that have very impaired children, the burden that that is for that day, for that week, but for years to come. Um, and so I think that we need to remember that these families have a lot of stress, they have a lot of fatigue, they have a lot of responsibility um, to care for their children. And it's, um, I see fabulous, fabulous parents torn apart at the diagnosis in young children and extremely fatigued and um, overexerted as I watch them go through the years. And they'll fluctuate in that. You know, there are times of extreme joy in caring for a child that is really impaired. And there are times of extreme sorrow and disappointment. And how do you reconcile all of that? So, um, so don't forget the parents as you're ministering to these children. Because, yes, we're loving the children, but these families need support. Um, so I think that one of the things you can do for the children is encouraging the parents and teaching them how to properly transfer their child so that they don't get injuries because these children may be little as a 3-year-old and fairly easy to care for. But as a 17-year-old, they can be big kids. They're adult size. Um, and then even going on past that, um, you know, that becomes a lot to care for. And moms... I had a, a man, and you know, when you're traveling with two little kids, you get a ton of help. Everyone comes up to you, oh, can I help? Can I help? And so it's great. It's actually a piece of cake to travel by myself with two kids, sometimes easier than going with my husband. Um, not really. Um, but um, 
So this man took my bag and he said, oh my goodness, this is so heavy. Moms can carry anything. I can carry my baby as long as you need me to carry it. You give me somebody else's child and I can't carry them for a hundred steps, right? So moms are going to fight you when you try to teach them um, alternate ways to transition and to carry their children because they know how to do it best, and they do. But we have to let them know that we're not only teaching them how to transfer them and care for them now, we're trying to protect them and care for them for the long term. Um, so here are some basics. I'm not going to significantly go over body mechanics. I hated doing body mechanics in PT school. I'm still not the one with best body mechanics. Um, but it is a good thing to just alert and to bring to their awareness. And I'm going to show you some more transfer techniques. Um, so if a child has trunk support, so if they can sit pretty independently, um, then a great way to help transfer them as they're older is a sliding board. You can be creative. I've been trying to think, how can I tell you to be creative with this? In America, it's, it's a wooden board. It's just a three-foot, maybe not even that long by 12 inches board that's slick. It's typically wood that's like, I don't know, varnished or stained or, you know, something like that, um, that you just slide across. Um, and so as you can see, this caregiver is helping this person. They can slide. They can even help swivel themselves with their arms so you can give a lot of independence to a child in the transfers that they can actually help, um, as well as obviously significantly decrease the workload for the caregiver. Um, so overseas, if you, if you have a piece of wood, that's great. You've got to be careful of splinters because they're really going to swivel on this. So splinters is a huge issue. So if there's something you can put on top of that, that a splinter wouldn't go through, I don't know. I mean, every case is going to be different. But if you can find something that they could slide on, you could significantly decrease and improve independence. Some children are going to be able to do this independently from the chair to the bed, from the bed to the toilet, whatever the case may be, they can really help this. Now, um, surface height differences can make this challenging. But, I mean, I have kids that can do this with an 8-inch height difference. You'll see them going up steep hills like this up their sliding board. It's amazing what they can do once they get the hang of it. Stand pivot transfers are a great option if, so you may be um, bedridden, but if you can still bear weight through your legs even a little bit, this is a great option for teaching caregivers to transfer. I want my surfaces to be at 90 degree angle. So if my bed is here, I want to put the chair right beside it at a 90 degree angle. And then I want to stand in front of the patient, ideally block their knees with mine, um, because you don't know if they're going to buckle on you. So if they're going to buckle and my knees are blocking their knees, they can't go anywhere. I can shove them right back to the chair or the bed to which we're coming or going. But then if you kind of can help pull them forward, they help stand up on their feet, you can just swivel them right like this, set them down on the bed. It's really an easy transfer once you get used to it. Um, so it's a, you know, try it on peers. It's hard to try this on peers because we all have muscle tone and we can't help but help. Um, but, um, you know, start trying this on less impaired people, and then you can work down to people who need more assistance. Um, but certainly, if they can take any weight through their legs, and you don't have to fully lift all of that weight, that's a huge, huge help. Yeah. Yes. Yes. 
absolutely. For those of you that are in here, he's saying the posterior pelvic tilt, using your glute muscles and your abdominal muscles to really help with that transfer are very, very helpful. You're kind of sitting into it using that good body mechanics that I kind of skipped over. But it's important. <laughs> um, I'll mention this again later. There's something I have. But, um, but there are a lot of times that people are just... Children and adults are just too impaired to even assist with the transfer at all. And so um, the most common lift that you're going to see is kind of that carry position, right? Just how mom kind of cradles her baby, one arm under the knees, one arm kind of behind the head, under the shoulders, depending on if they have head control, and carries them. For a large person, this is a lot of lifting. Um, and so that's what you're going to see a lot of moms. I have seen, I have two little kids that I follow right now. They came to me from Somalia, and they look like their mom's arms. It is the weirdest thing I've ever seen. Their hips, the way their head is positioned, they look like they, are, they have been held for nine years in their mother's arms, one in their mom's arms, one in their sister's arms. Um, and to get them sitting now in a wheelchair is a very interesting task because I can't recreate that, but that's exactly how their bodies are. Um, and so, so that's what you're going to see most commonly, and that works up until about adolescence, and then it gets really labor-intensive. So a two-person lift is what you're going to go to. I don't like this picture, but I could not find what I wanted, so I apologize. This gives you kind of the gist. Yeah, I don't like it. Sorry, I didn't preface that before I turned it. Um, so if I'm doing a two-person lift, typically one person is kind of under the arms in the back, and you want to not, you're not going to hold somebody like this. Your hands and your wrists are not as stable as your whole, you know, I've got some pretty good biceps here, right? I want to use those biceps to really carry and shoulder a patient um, compared to just my little hands. So one person's going to kind of be under their arms. You've got to be careful. Some people are, have so little muscle tone, they can't grip you right here. Like, if you practice this on a friend, they're going to kind of grip and stabilize even though they don't realize they're doing it. Some of these people are so hypotonic, they have what we call a slip-through sign in that you kind of put your hands here and they could literally, like a noodle, just kind of wiggle right out of you. So you've got to be careful transferring a patient for the first time because you don't know what their muscle tone is um, to effectively and safely transfer them. So get a good grip those first couple of times you transfer. Transfers always get easier and easier um, as you get to know a person. and as, So listen to your families because they know them and they know what they can do and they can help you formulate what's best for transferring. The second person, person then is kind of under the, um, just above the knees. So you want to kind of take the bulk of the weight of their legs. Um, and um, that person should typically be facing the person, not facing away. I guess if you were carrying a person for a long distance, perhaps this is the best way. But that's not at all what I'm thinking or implying to you. So, um, and, and that person has to more be careful of their body mechanics because they've got the, the other person is going to be holding them up. Typically, the person with the legs is a little bit in a lower position. If you're going to a seated position, you're going to have to be, do some better squatting and things. Um, and, um, but that's a, but again, then, you know, a lot of times the moms may be the only one around. Um, and so transferring by a two-person list may be ideal, but it requires the time of two people to take time out of their day to do several transfers, oftentimes a day. But if you can do a two-person transfer, it certainly is safer and um, for the patient and for the person per performing the lift. I have had, I have um, 
there are some resources available for kind of making some equipment overseas. Um, some of these things that we take for granted in the States, a transfer belt would be super easy to make. I have a lot of families who will make it um, for even in the States because they're just ridiculously expensive for what they are. But a transfer belt is a great way, or it's a belt that you can kind of put on that has, you see, all these little pull tabs on it, essentially. And you can use that to then kind of help leverage the weight. Sometimes it's hard to figure out what to hold on to, especially if it's a large person. And if I'm doing a lift here, you know, can I reach under their buttocks to support and kind of pull up on them? Um, are they too big for that, that I can't effectively do that? If I hold around them, it's sometimes awkward, sometimes, you know, depending on the situation. So if you get a transfer belt, sometimes it decreases the, the closeness and proximity that you have to be to somebody, but it also gives you something to just hold on to. Holding on to pants, pants rip a lot, and so pulling them up by the weight of their pants is not very safe. I see a lot of underwear ripped um, in, you know, higher level nursing homes and things like that for people who are doing transfers inappropriately. Um, so, but you can see how you can easily make this. Just a thick piece of cloth that can go around somebody that then you can put loops on to provide some leverage and help you um, help transfer a patient. Um, so, I want you to be encouraged by this because as we go out and as we serve people all over this world, um, James 1.27 says that religion that God our Father accepts as pure and blameless is this, to look after the orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Um, and, and these may not necessarily be orphans and widows, but certainly don't they fall in that category? People who are distressed and down and out and, um, and families that, are, that may be forlorn. And so... Um, I give you the charge to love them, and if you can make them a little bit more comfortable um, in in their disability, then I think that you will bestow a lot of hope to them and joy to them, and um, and hopefully to their families as well. And ultimately, I pray that that will make the gospel more clear to them, and that they will see Jesus through the actions that you're giving them. Um, I forgot my cards. I put them in the suitcase and I forgot them. Um, but I would love to hear from you. I will warn you I'm not the best with email, but I will respond to you. It just may not be within a day. Um, so, But feel free to email me and um, let me know if you have questions or needs as you're overseas or if you need somebody to connect with. I, can, I love doing that kind of thing. Um, and... So let me know how I can be of assistance to you as you are out doing the work. Um, does anybody have questions? Yeah. One good resource that that's, there's no charge for is Disabled Village Children. You can download it on the flash drive. And I'm a physical therapist that goes to other countries at times. And there's a lot of how to help lines where there's no doctor. I, I now bring that on my flash drive, and it has a lot of suggestions. What was it called? Disabled Village Children. Right. 
much room on the computer. Sure. You can take it when you go somewhere. And there's also for, you know, women's health care needs. They have a whole bunch of, and they even have them in other languages. Mm. Not every language, but, but they have a lot of different things that you can make and suggestions. And families have really liked that. And, um, but it's just a, it's just a resource that for us would be free and we can share it. Sure. Disabled Village Children. Yes, and the books, Amazon sells them or the okay. society sells them. I mean, everything there is not copyrighted, and it's you can um, photocopy anything. It's for that purpose. Great. Thank you. Did you say what uh, organization that's through the test of food? Well, it's... I, it's very important. Yeah. It's very They have a copy of it down in, in their booth down here. Okay. And you can buy the book, but you can download it free. Great. Yeah. What are you talking about incontinence? About what? Incontinence. Yes. Did you have a comment, or you wanted me to comment? Yeah, that's correct. He's saying, so a lot of these children are incontinent of urine and stool, um, which kind of relates to that cleanliness thing. It is so important to keep them clean, but it's a, it's a chore. It's hard. It's a lot of work. Um, but they may not have the the diapers and the, the ability to keep them as clean as we do. And so it is um, so, so important that we watch that because that's a really big source of infection. Yeah. So she's saying adaptive design is a course in New York City that uses a lot of uses cardboard um, and teaches you how to make modifications to seating and um, sure that's amazing. I highly recommend reading the book Life Without Limbs by Nick Richardson. This guy has no arms and no legs, and he's developed all kinds of things to get him around. He's even married now, and he's evangelist. He's out there winning people to yeah. the Lord. And they put him on a table, and all the, there he is and with his little toe. And it's just going through scripture, and he's, he can use that toe. Hmm. And, and he's getting around so hmm. good. And I would love to see how he does it. Yeah. How he gets around so good. But so, that would be helpful for you, too, I'm sure. Sure. Yeah. So a book, Life Without Limbs, um, yeah, Life Without by a man yeah. without and arms and legs. Video, Okay. And Here's videos of them on YouTube. Yeah. Yeah. What's that? Oh, yeah. Any other? Yeah. Do you do fitting wheelchairs? Do work with Johnny and Friends Wheel for the World? Yes. And OBI is another one that's... Um, okay. Um, okay. Yeah, but there are there are some great opportunities for wheelchairs. I touched a little bit more on that last year and thought I would do more, but then as I kind of got things together, I felt like it was too much today. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
Yes. Yep. I've met him. He is a vibrant man, too. He's great. Yeah. For those who have, uh, you know, have the quadriplegic problems, the kids and so forth can't walk, we develop a, a, a trapeze sling over the bed, and over these little swings, they hook themselves up and lift themselves up yeah. gradually until they transfer. That's that great. Yeah, he's saying for um, some of these kids that can't use their legs but may have good arm um, control, then they make trapezes over their bed to help them transfer so that they can move themselves. Um, and that can be the case with a lot of people with orthopedic problems, too. If they're just stuck in bed for a time period or something, trapezes can be a great, but it can be a, it may be difficult to figure out how to do it, but something over the bed so that they can use their arms to boost themselves and transfer more. Yeah. So I'm a P, uh, PPT student. Yes. Um, do you have any advice for us if we're trying to get, we have to get involved in missions or any uh, advice, like what steps should we take? Yeah. So that's a great question. So he said he's a pre-PT pre-PT student. I'm wondering how they can get involved. Can I tell you, too, um, at 4 we have the... Physical and Occupational Therapy, I don't remember what it's called, something group. I'll be there um, and facilitating that discussion. So four. Yes, so it's in just 20 minutes or so. I think 280 or something around here. Um, but um, there are so many opportunities. And I actually was really, really encouraged last year. Go through the exhibit hall and you tell people. And you will find, I think the great thing is, is that people are realizing the need, the expertise that we have as therapists to, you know, I may not be saving lives with my medicine, but in a way I am, and I'm preserving quality of life, and I'm, I'm preventing complications that then will require significant medical and treatment. So there are actually a lot of people that are doing a lot of work overseas that they need therapists. Um, Jim Smith is one very specifically that I've um, communicated with over a lot. What is it? M-E-I? I don't remember what it stands for, um, but he has emailed me and said, please tell me names of therapists. Like, I need therapists, and he's a developmental pediatrician, I think. Yeah, he's downstairs. He said he was here this weekend. So connect with him because I know he's searching for therapists um, and would love to have people on board. He has a couple trips upcoming plan this year and he's begging for therapists so I know him specifically but there are more because I talked with a lot of people last year Jim Smith Mark Richards yeah yeah <laughs> great so find <laughs> down in the exhibit hall oh sure Thank you all for coming.